So now we're going to continue on in Genesis. And this is chapter, I'm, I've got two chapters. There's a lot of verses. So I'm not going to go through every single verse. I'm going to highlight, cut through it. We'll talk about the story and the narrative because this is another very strange narrative by our standards today. The things that are going on in here, we don't resonate with in terms of the interactions that these people are having with each other. Uh, but like I said, there's a lot there, and then we'll talk about a way that I, I view this and kind of what God kept hitting me with at the beginning of this. The last time that I preached before the Christmas stuff was the previous chapter 29, and we talked about discipline and punishment and consequences. Does anybody remember that? That God, a little bit, you were listening a little bit. Uh, God, we are in this constant cycle of we're sinning. That's what we struggle with on this world right now, right? We have, we're in this position where if you are a child of God and you, are a, you have this relationship with Christ, you are righteous. You have what the Bible calls the imputed righteousness of Christ. In your, you are there, but we're still in these bodies and sin dwells with us, and if you want to read more about that, go to Romans chapter 7 and read the nice conversation that Paul goes back and forth between the righteousness and the sin that you have to struggle with. So until we get to go be with Jesus, we have to fight this battle. And God uses discipline to make us into better and better versions of ourselves. Within That's called the process of sanctification. So that's what we talked about last time. And we talked a little bit about what I call the Baby War Chronicles. Those are going to continue. We have more of that coming up. We're going to talk a lot about cattle. But in this one, we don't have any women and wells for, for Joel's stuff. We're not going to have that in this particular passage. Well, we have camels. We have a camel or two. And we have running away. We have a lot of running away. So kind of retreating, I guess. Absolutely, and we will point that out when we get there, because they are retreating on camels. Okay, Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. This is great, right? So she's already, she's upset at her sister. We already know that the sisters are, they don't get along very well. Leah blames Rachel for stealing her husband, and Rachel blames her sister for having children when she can't have any. And we'll talk more about why that is, but Jacob, verse 2, his anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld you from you the fruit of the womb? So she's like lashing out even at her husband. She's like, come on, give me kids. And he's like, ah, I don't know what else to do. So then she gives her servant Bilhah. And so Bilhah conceives, and now we start the first child is Dan from her. So Leah's already had a few of the boys, and now we have the, the servant, and she has Dan. And then they're always naming the kids, remember this, related to what they were feeling at the time. So verse 7, she says, or verse 8, she says, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, and I prevailed. So this is after Dan, and she called his name Naphtali. 
So again, every time she's thinking about this, in this society, it was super important for women to have children. That's where these women are deriving their worth, right? If they're barren, that's bad. So I'm going to bring my maidservant up and see if I can have children through a surrogacy, essentially, is what that was. And if they had boys, that was even better. And again, these are things that are hard for us in our society to identify with, that your, your worth as, as a woman would be just through childbearing. But this was what was going on then. So we have to try to put ourselves in the, in the shoes of the biblical writer and of the time period that this is happening and try to understand what God is doing within this as opposed to take our views of the way our society is today in America and superimpose it on the Bible and say, well, that's just weird. That, that can't say anything to me because that's not true. We have to open our minds a little bit and say, okay, just because they do things and think things a little differently than the way we do, there's still lots of value in here because this is the holy, inspired word of God. So she had Dan, she had Naphtali, verse 9, then Leah ceases bearing again. So she's not going to have any more kids. So what does she do? Well, I'm going to do what Rachel did. And she takes her servant, Zilpah, and she says, here you go. Now Zilpah is going to be your wife. So Bilhah's his wife, Zilpah's his wife, Leah's his wife, Rachel's his wife. He has four wives. And then Zilpah bore Gad. And then in verse 12 and 13, we have Asher. So they just continue on having more children. And so what we find out is there are 11, 12 boys. There's 11 at this point over 14 years. Remember again, Jacob, how old was he? 77 years old when this started. And over the course of the next 14 years, he has, he works seven years for, for Leah, seven years for Rachel, and they have all of these boys. The only one that isn't born yet of the children of Israel is Benjamin, and that comes in later chapters. So here's another interesting, um, how Johnny would call a Jerry Springer moment. Verse 14, in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Now historically, mandrakes were treated in this society as an aphrodisiac, just in case you wonder why mandrakes are even brought up in here. Brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. And here we see more of this animosity between the sisters, verse 15. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Not happy. Rachel said, okay. He can lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. So she's basically saying, all right, you can sleep with our husband tonight if you give me the mandrakes. I mean, this is a weird situation. I can't imagine anything like this going on in any of our lives right now. So Jacob came in from the field, and Leah went out to meet him, and she said, you have to come with me because I hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he's like, okay. <laughs> and so, verse 17, and God listened to Leah... And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. So remember, Leah gave him boys, and then she quit being able to produce, and then she gave him his 
her uh, maid, and now God says, God, listen to Leah, because she's been praying. I want to have more children. And she conceived and bore him a fifth son, and Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. But she called his name Issachar, and that word sounds like the Hebrew word for wages, for hire, or recompense. So in a way, she bought Jacob with the mandrakes, and this is the wages for the hire, which is an interesting way to think about it. And then she bore him another son in verse 19. And again, we see this continuing thing where she's getting her worth and she's thinking that she's going to gain the love of her husband because she's having more boys. And it says in verse 20, then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I've borne him six sons. And his name was Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter called Dinah. Then we get to verse 22. So God just listened to Leah, re-allowed her to have more children. Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb, and she conceived and bore a son. And she says, God has taken away my reproach. So her previous statements of, okay, I'm going to be vindicated by my maidservant in the surrogacy, and God will bless me because of that. And she said that's what happened, but really in her heart she was feeling... Here it says God's taken away her reproach. So she was still feeling basically worthless because she hadn't herself borne him a son. But now we have Joseph. And then she said, may the Lord add to me another son, which does happen later. So that's the end of the baby wars. Just to recap, right, children are hugely important. The women are deriving their their self-worth from having children. Leah believes Rachel stole her husband, Rachel believes this is a mighty struggle with her sister. They're always going back and forth. Rachel also blames Jacob at some points. She, they use Jacob as a bargaining chip. And God, however, listened to both Leah and Rachel and answered their prayers. So that's all interesting. So you see this behavior that doesn't seem like great behavior, but God still listened to what they were asking him and answered their prayers. So we'll talk about that a little bit more later. So Reuben was the firstborn, and we get down, and like I said, we know that this was 14 years in, because the next thing that happens, in verse 25, as soon as Rachel had, be- had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away, that I may go to my own home and country. So he's basically saying, I've been working for the 14 years that I told you I would work for you for these two wives. It's time for me to go. I need to go. But Laban is not really ready to let him go because as we see in this section between verses 25 and 31, Laban realizes that God's been blessing everything that's going on around there through Jacob. He doesn't want to get rid of it. So he basically says... Verse 28, name your wages and I'll give it. Jacob kind of says, I've served you. Everything's, God's blessed it. You've gotten all this increase. And I will stay and work for you some more. Turns out he works for him for six more years. Right? So 20 years total, he stays with Laban. And Jacob names the wages that he wants in verse 32. It says, let me pass through all your flock today. 
removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep, every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats. And these will be my wages. So he wants the black lambs and all the speckled and spotted animals. Those are going to be his wages, right? So my honesty will answer for me later. When you come and look into my wa- when we look into my wages with you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if it's found with me, it will be counted as stolen. So he's basically saying, at the end of whatever we decide this time period is, you come look at my herds. And if you find anything in there that doesn't just match that, I stole it. And you can deal with it as you will. In verse 35, though, Laban's like, he says, verse 34, he says, good, let it be as you said. He's like, great idea, let's do that. So the first thing he does in verse 35 is Laban goes to all the herds and removes all the male goats that were striped and spotted, all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, and all the lambs that were black, and gave them all to his sons and said, you guys go several days away so there can be no cross-pollination between those flocks and Jacob's. So he agrees to Jacob, these will be your wages, and then he literally removes every single animal that matches what Jacob said and pulls them out of the flock. So he starts cheating right away because that's what he does. Then Jacob, verse 37, this is Jacob's version of science. Now, it turns out this went on, this practice went on for thousands of years. And whole cultures swore by this. So I don't know. All I know is that in this particular case, God miraculously makes it work. And he tells us that he miraculously makes it work. But what does he do? Well, he wants offspring of his animals to be speckled and spotted, right? So what he does is he takes a stick and he chops sections out of it, like strips back the bark, so that there's white showing through. So it's striped. And when the animals come to drink the water, and breed, he puts the sticks in the troughs. So they're standing there looking at these sticks while they're breeding, and their offspring are then that color. And he does that with the stronger animals. If it's a strong animal, he puts the sticks there. And if they're weaker animals, he takes the sticks away, so they'll be born the right colors for Laban's flock. And this is, he does this continually, and it works because God said, I'm going to bless you, and I see what Laban's doing to you. Verse 41, that's the stronger ones. Then we go down to verse 43, and this is where we have camels. Thus, the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, and male servants, and camels, and donkeys. So Jacob wants to take his wives, all of his servants, all of his possessions. He wants to leave, go back to Canaan. Laban talks him into staying because they're going to come up with some new wages. Laban tries to cheat. Jacob uses this amazing scientific discovery of just what you look at. And God blessed the herd genetically in Jacob's favor. Right? So that's what happened in this section. So now we go to verse or chapter 31. God is speaking to Jacob. Genesis 31.1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he's gained all of his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Again, we have, I mean, this is just like a train wreck of a family. Now, Jacob's 
children, his boys, are saying bad things about, I'm, not, I'm sorry, Laban's boys are saying bad things about Jacob. And they're basically blaming everything he's stealing from our dad. He's taking everything that we have built up over the years. It's, it's now gone, right? And it's all Jacob's fault. And he's, he's not a great person. We don't like him. And he says also that Laban didn't regard him with favor as before either. So Laban's getting upset because even though he pulled out all of the animals that were supposed to be Jacob's wages and moved them off before their agreement started, turns out it didn't work. All of the animals that Jacob is getting in his flock match his wages. And we see later that Laban keeps changing the wages. Jacob says in a couple places that Laban changed his wages at least 10 times, where he'd say, oh, well, since all the flock is being born with speckled and mottled and this and that, now it's got to be like pure colors. And then God would change it, and then they would get pure colors. So no matter what Laban tried to do, he wasn't ever able to cheat Jacob because God was working it out for him. Verse 3, 31. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was. Okay, so God comes to Jacob and he says, It's time to go, and I'll be with you. Everything will be good. So Jacob grabs his wives and takes them out in the middle of nowhere so we can have a conference with them in private. And we basically get this section of complaining back and forth. So he makes his complaints about Laban, and then they make their complaints about Laban, and they all decide, yeah, let's go. So what do we have in here? He calls him into the field, and he says, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. Then if he said if the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given it to me. And then he talks about another dream that he had. In verse 11, the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I've seen all that Laban is doing to you. I'm the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. So it seems like God talked to him twice about getting out of this area. So he basically says, you know, I served with all my strength. He keeps cheating me, trying to cheat me, changes everything. I'm, you know, we need to go. And God said to go. Because Jacob always adds more on. If you remember way back the last time Johnny preached, talking about, or maybe even before, it was a Johnny message, I'll tell you that much. I don't remember exactly when it was, but he talked about when Jacob was at Bethel. And he said, he wrestled and saw Jacob's ladder, right, and all of that. But then he kind of bargains with God. He goes, you know, if you take care of me and you give me stuff and you keep me safe, I will serve you. You'll be my God. That's kind of how Jacob rolls. It's always a bargain with him. So in this situation, God tells him to go, but he's still got to figure out a way to justify it in his own mind about what he wants to do instead of just saying, let's go. So now verse 14, then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? 
Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and indeed devoured our money. So they're sitting there saying, okay, all the stuff that our dad has, really it should be ours. It's our inheritance. And he's devoured it. And he's taken everything from us. There's nothing left here for us. So then in verse 16, they say, whatever God has said to you, do. Do that. So they're basically, you know, saying a lot of mean things about Laban. And they're, and they're instead of just saying, God told us to leave, we should leave. They're like, yeah, we need to leave, but there's reasons why we should leave. This is, this is all bad. And Rachel takes this into her hands later. Now, verse 17, we wind up with the beginning of this, okay? So they make their decision. Jacob arose, set his sons and his wives on camels. And he drove all all of his livestock, all his property. Everything was in his possession that he got and put on Aram and went to the land of Canaan. Verse 19, Laban had gone out to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. Okay. She decided to take something that wasn't hers. But this winds up being hugely a big deal for Laban. And we're going to talk about why that is, because I think a lot of us, and myself included in many times in the past, when I read about these these types of gods, these household gods, and different passages like in Isaiah, and it says these are worthless idols. They don't have any power. You, a carpenter can cut down a tree and make a bench with part of it and an idol with the other part, and it's not anything special. So why wouldn't Laban just make more? Kind of an idea, right? But that, he takes it way more seriously than this. Verse 20, it says Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he was leaving. He basically gets a three-day head start, and when Laban finds out, it takes him seven days to catch up. And they've already crossed over the Euphrates. But, verse 24, but God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night. Because Laban is really upset at this point. And he said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. That's all he says. So essentially he's saying, you need to be really, really careful what you say when you get there because I'm watching. And Laban brings this up to him when he's, when he's ranting at Jacob, and so I'm not sure how he internalized it because he still is not being very nice and he's accusing him of things, but um, he, he lives through it, so I guess he didn't do too bad. Verse 26 this is when Laban shows up in the camp and he says to Jacob, what have you done? Why have you tricked me? And you've taken away my daughters like captives with a sword. He's like, I would have, I would have thrown a party for you guys. We would have had tambourines and lyres and mirth and songs. It would have been great. But you didn't let me kiss my sons or my grandchildren. You just stole away in the night. It's foolish of you. And I have the power to do you harm And he basically says, because everything you have is really mine, right? He still is claiming that all the work that Jacob did, really it should be his because Jacob didn't have anything when he showed up, right? But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. 
And now you've gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house, which is true. But why, this is in verse 30, did you steal my gods? Okay, so he's upset. He's like, why did you do that? I get everything else, fine, but why did you steal my gods? And it probably made no sense to him because he's like, you serve this other god. You don't even worship these household gods. Why, why did you, why'd you do this? And this is when Jacob gets upset and he starts lashing out back to Laban because that's how these guys deal with conflict resolution. They yell and scream at each other. I don't recommend it. He said, because I was afraid, for I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. And Laban probably would have, because he still thinks it's all his stuff anyway. But anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have, ta- what I have that is yours and take it. So he didn't steal the gods, and he didn't know that his wife did. As a side note, I wonder if Rachel ever really had a chance to be an honest person. Because she was raised with Laban's household, and he's obviously deceitful. He was trying to trick Isaac way back when, when, he was, when Isaac was getting Rebecca, And then now, we have all of the way that he changes wages and does all these things, and they're deceitful toward each other. And then she marries Jacob, whose name means deceiver. And he'll catch her, trip people up, right? And so she decided... Again, she remember the, the conversation. She's justifying the inheritance. Well, why is that? Well, it turns out that the word household gods is a Hebrew word. that mean, it's, it, The word is called teraphim. And you might have heard seraphim before, talking about the cherubim and the seraphim that are over in you know, part of the heavenly realms. Um, and they're carved onto the Ark of the Covenant and in the temple. Well, a teraphim is what, what these household gods are. Well, we discovered these tablets in a town called Newsy in 1925 and excavated them from 1925 to 1933. They found over 5,000 family and administrative archives covering six generations. And they turn out to be right from this area and right from this time period. And these household gods were not just something that people worshipped. They were the legal representationship of your ownership of your stuff. The land that you owned and everything that you had, you would give the household gods to your heir. And they could use that as a legal you know, token, a contract, to show to the other people in the area and the leaders in the area that I do, in fact, own this patch of ground and, and this stuff is mine. Right? So that's what the teraphim were. So Rachel stole the inheritance that Laban would give to his own sons. If he doesn't have those household gods, they have no legal binding contract with the society that they lived in that they owned that stuff anymore. So that's what was really going on. There's a lot more. There's a few other things that we find out from these Newsy tablets that shed light on some other pieces. We all talked at length about Abram saying to Pharaoh, Sarah's my sister. And then Isaac did the same thing, right? Abram did it twice, and Isaac did the same thing. She's my sister. Why? And we were like, that's just weird. Well, it turns out that in this society, you could legally elevate your wife to the, to the rank of your sister. And it gave her more power and more control over your estates and more legal rights 
and more protection in their society. The problem is, is that Pharaoh, which is a completely different society, and Abimelech, also a different society, they wouldn't have known anything about this law. But it makes sense that, yes, those guys were covering their own you know, selves and they didn't want to be murdered because their wives were so beautiful. But at the same time, they were trying in a legal way to elevate their wives to a higher standing in society so that they would have more protection. So that's another thing that we learned. And that's, this is also why Laban just didn't make more idols. Because that, that he had to have those idols. Those are the ones that get passed down from generation to generation. And the other thing to remember is that although an idol was worthless, we also have in the Old Testament that the idols in certain cases, depending on who they were serving, would be imbued by one of the lesser gods, the lesser Elohim, and they actually would do some things. So we have all of that stuff going on in the background as well. There's no talk of that here, but there are other places in the Old Testament where it is talked about. And let me think. Was there anything else in the New Tablets? Ah, yes. Surrogate motherhood. With the maids, that is listed out as part of the legal proceedings of this culture. That was a normal thing that women would do. They would take their maidservants and they would marry them to their husbands in order for them to have children through surrogacy if they couldn't have children themselves. So even though all of these things, we look at it and we're like, that's just weird, it was a thing that was going on generation after generation for thousands of years in this society. So to them, it was all completely normal and above board. Again, we need to get into the shoes of the writers and the time period and figure out what the Bible's actually saying and try to get our own biases and throw them out if we can. I mean, that's not easy to do, but that's what we need to do. So there's a little archaeological tidbit for you on the Newsy tablets. So now we go into verse 36. This is where Jacob starts getting angry, and he enumerates all of the bad things that Laban has done for him. What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? And why is this? Well, Laban searches everything. He searches all the tents, he searches all the baggage, and he doesn't find anything. Except that Rachel, who did steal the gods and has them in her possession, has them hidden in what they call the furniture or the luggage. So this is the saddle and the stuff for the camel that she had been riding. And she has the household gods hidden there, and she's sitting on top of it. Now, we know in the law that a woman's monthly time was considered unclean, right? She had to go out of the camp for three days. Anything that the blood touched had to be destroyed. And there was similar rules for men and different problems that they might have with fluids. All of these things were in the law, but this is before the law, okay? But turns out, again, those tablets illuminate a little bit, that that was, all these societies had that as a they called it a defilement. So Rachel's sitting on the luggage, and when Laban comes by, she says, I'm sorry I can't get up, Uncle. I'm having my monthly time. And he's just like, okay. And it never crosses his mind that she would put the household gods in that situation in order to have them be defiled. Right? It would farthest thing from his mind that she would ever do that. 
But that's what she did. So he doesn't find the gods. And then when they, he goes through everything and he finds nothing of his in all of Jacob's camp, among all the tents and everything, then Jacob starts getting upset and yelling back. He says in verse 38, 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. I have not eaten the ram of your flocks. What was torn by a wild beast I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. And this is where he gets into the whole... It's being very dramatic. Verse 40. There I was by day. The heat consumed me. And the cold by night. And the sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. And you have changed my wages 10 times. Right? So he's just like, I've just really been through it for you, buddy. You need to get out of my face. Now, he says in verse 42, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. So that vision that Laban got where God says, don't say anything good or bad to him. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, these daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do? Can I do this day for these daughters and for their children whom you have born? So then in verse 44, they say, make a covenant, you and I. And they set up stones, and they do a sacrifice, and they have a meal, and they do all these things. And I, there's a pastor named Chuck Missler, and he talked a little bit about this. And this, this, this stone, this agreement was called a mispah. And what was funny is he was talking about it in the Christian bookstores and you see these little chains that have a split down the middle and you have two halves and it's called a mispah and it's meant to be like, I give you my, your half and I have my half and we make this agreement, we're going to be with each other. Well, that's based on this, except this isn't at all happy and good. This agreement is if either one of us steps out of line, God's going to hammer us and God's going to watch because you're deceitful and untrustworthy and, I, and we're going we're gonna to be watching. That's what this whole agreement is, verses 44 on down um, to verse 54. This is where they offer the sacrifice. Verse 55, Laban rises, kisses his grandchildren, and leaves. And they go on. And that's the end of the chapter, 31. But this agreement was not some happy, you know, fun thing between friends. It was enemies putting up a wall that is guarded by God so that they don't cross over and do bad things to each other. So in conclusion of that section, right, Jacob is being deceitful. He does everything in secret and runs away. Rachel steals the teraphim. Laban claims ownership over everything that he has, but he's like, what can I do? He doesn't find anything, and then they create this agreement. So what struck me about all this, and remember, we're seeing very few little events over the course of 20 years, right? I, I'm sure that Rachel and Leah did, didn't always, you know, hate each other all the time, 99, you know, every day, 365 out of the year, or in the calendar back then, I think it was 360 days, but he... We're seeing these events that happen that are negative and that are 
bad between this family. But there was a lot of time in here that they're just living their life and doing their thing. And God still fathers us. He is our father, and he treats us like children even when we're bad. How do I know this? God directly intervenes by action, answering prayers, and visions five times in these two chapters. Even when Rachel and Leah are praying for the sole purpose of their own pride, their own selfishness, and getting over on their sister, God still answers their prayers. And God answers our prayers even when we aren't perfect. Because how many of us are perfect? No hands? Good. Yeah, I knew, I knew I'd get one. He's perfectly a smart aleck. <laughs> he answers prayers that are based in pride and jealousy. That's actually wonderful. Because they were at war with each other. They had bitterness in their hearts, but God listened and acted even though they continued in this attitude for years. They were both jockeying for preeminence. There's a $10 word for you. Jacob acted deceitfully even when he was doing what God told him to do. So God says, go back, and he's like, okay, hide in secret. We're going to get out of here. He knew that this wasn't going to go well with Laban. It says in the Scripture that he tricked him. But even though he was following God's will, he was still doing it in a deceitful manner. And we talked about back with Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau when they were being born, and there was this prophecy, right, about the elder will serve the younger. But then they still either tried to ignore the prophecy or take it into their own hands, and they lied and cheated and treated each other very badly, doing God's will at the same time which I think is really good news for us. Because I personally commit a lot of sin. And like we said before, this isn't the big stuff. This is thoughts. This is things going on in my head. I won't even necessarily act on it, right? This isn't the big things, you know, hurting people and robbing banks and all the bad stuff that you can do. This is the little stuff that is still against God's holiness, this is the stuff that puts you in judgment and condemnation. But when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ and he has, you have his righteousness that covers over all that, you are still actually righteous in God's sight. And so you have to continually, what does it say in 1 John 1, 9? It says, if you confess your sins, God is gracious and he will forgive you your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness because you constantly have this conversation with God and God is disciplining you and trying to make you into a better person. You know, we have the verses that say that you should, uh, your, your reasonable act of worship, was that Romans 12, right? Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship, Right? And we talked way back before in chapter 29 about the fact that we're God's children and we are priests of God and the sacrifice that we give at the altar is what? Ourselves. We're sacrificing our own pride. We're sacrificing our own things. We're giving of ourselves for others. 
Now we also have God also intervened with a non-believer, someone who has his own gods in his house, and God intervened with him directly. And we've seen this before in the Old Testament, where God, God did not just have relationships with his own people. He had relationships with the whole world. All the nations belong to God. He talked to lots of people. When we have, remember Balaam and the donkey, that story, right? Well, when they wanted, they hired Balaam to curse the Israelites, God was talking to Balaam. Was Balaam a Jew or a follower, a Hebrew? No, he wasn't because that, that wasn't, you know, Moses had just pulled him out of the promised land and they were wandering in the wilderness. So there was a pre-existing relationship since Laban had never been to Egypt and met any, not Laban, I'm sorry, Balaam or any of those people. God still had this relationship with various people around the world, just like he does today. So we have to remember that. We get this narrow focus of just what is in the scripture and we ignore the fact that God's still working in people's lives all the time. So God listens to us even when we're in sin. And that's why he disciplines us. That's why we have this thing going on. And there's one instance that I know of in the Scripture, and this is just for the husbands, that your prayers can be not listened to by God or hindered. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So as a husband, if you're not living with your wife in an understanding way, and you're not showing honor to her, God says your prayers can be hindered. That doesn't sound good. Because we know that God even listens to the prayers of those who don't believe in Him at all. How, how would anyone ever be saved Because if God didn't listen to you pray for repentance? If, you, if He's not listening to those prayers, He wouldn't answer you and save you. But He does. So He listens to prayers from anyone if they're prayers of repentance. And I think he listens to some prayers for other things too sometimes because he, like I said, he has the whole world and he's doing things that we're not aware of. And there are verses that say that God doesn't listen to anything from someone who's unrighteous. Like John 9, 31, 1 Peter 3, 12, Psalm 66. Those verses say he listens to the righteous and not sinners. But I want to point out again, we're not sinners in that way. We, who are children of God because of our relationship with Jesus Christ, have God's righteousness in us all the time, even when we don't realize it. It's still there. Just like when it says when two or three are gathered together, Jesus is there in the midst. How many times do we forget that? You go to coffee with a couple of your friends in the name of Christ, Jesus Christ is there with you at the table. We forget that. <laughs> okay, there was a coffee joke in there about Hebrews, and we're not going <laughs> to justify that or sanctify that. And the other thing that's going on here over this course of these 20 years is God's will through... These guys are just living their lives, doing their thing, right? And remember... Back to the day-to-day -day and the everyday, 
God is guiding, and they're, and they're in their relationship with God. And you remember back uh, when David, and I don't remember exactly, this is in 1 Samuel 9 or 10, when Saul, sorry, gets anointed by Samuel to be king, and then he looks at Samuel and says, what should I do now? What do I do? And God said, or Samuel said, you go do whatever your hand finds to do because God is with you. And what he was telling him is, is it doesn't really matter which thing you pick to do because as long as your relationship is solid with God, he's with you, and whatever it is that you do, God is going to be in that. So when you're sitting there struggling over, well, which job should I take or which latte should I order or whatever it is that you're asking God about, and in many cases, it doesn't matter which one you do because your relationship with God is the constant in our life, not the decisions that we make. When we sin, he forgives us when we ask for forgiveness. And if we don't, there's consequences and there's things that happen until eventually you go, yes, Father, I'm, I'm sorry that I, I acted in that way. Right? So God is working with us on an ongoing basis. But when he is with you, you can be effective for him and follow his will. Whatever situation that you're in, whatever job, whatever life, whatever's going on, you can serve him in that. So there's all kinds of choices that you can make, and all of them are equally powerful in your relationship with God. And remember also, as his children, we are priests, we are kings, and we are heirs with Christ. All of those things are true every single day, every single minute of every day, every second of every minute. That stuff is true for you, and we need to not forget it on a daily basis. We need to look at a story like this, and we see Joseph, I'm sorry, not Joseph, we see Jacob and all of his wives and all the stuff that's going on and all this crazy drama, and there was God in the middle of it, answering prayers, working with them, training them, teaching them, and moving on through their lives for that whole 20-year period, just like he does with us. And there are things that you can look back on your Christmas card and you can have, here's the cool events that happened to me in 2021. And people put pictures in there. That's not all that happened to you in 2021. There was a whole lot of stuff that happened in 2021 you didn't put on the Christmas card, right? You maybe don't want to remember it. Or maybe you just didn't have enough room to put more stuff on your Christmas card. And there was a couple really cool events that you just left out. Right? God was there all those moments, everything that was going on. And that's what we need to remember is constantly being in God's presence and saying, Lord, I know you're here with me right now. What is, it, is the next thing that I need to be focused on? What is my heart attitude and my relationships with other people? Because really that's what we have. We have relationships. All the rest of it, you don't get to take it when you go. Right? but you're going to be spending eternity with your brothers and sisters. All right, let's pray. And the worship team, I think it's a worship one. So it's a team of one. It's a one-man army right here. <laughs> Father God, we praise you so much for your love and your care for us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you that in our relationship, as your children, Lord, you are with us. And you are constantly molding us and shaping us to be what you want us to be, Father. 
and it's individual, and it's unique, and it's just amazing. We pray that you would bless this service. We bless this time, Lord. We pray that you would bless this worship time and that your spirit would flow through us in a way that glorifying to you, Father. And we just thank you, especially for the sacrifice of your son. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here doing this. In Jesus' name, amen.